The research from Lisa Miller at uh, Columbia shows very clearly that a transcendent spiritual drive is inherent in being human. And I think what happens when we're isolated and, and don't have access or feel we don't have access to others, we'll forget that that we have this transcendent quality inherent in our own being. So prayer and meditation are really direct ways to access that. Then the second way, of course, is get off your butt. (laughs) Get out, take a walk around the block, and do something we call hunt the good. There's a lot of good stuff out there, but when you're in a depression, it's like looking through life Uh, with a dark screen or veil in front of you. Life is there, it's on the other side. It's like the sun being hidden by the cloud. Nobody would suggest that the sun has gone away, but we get so focused on the cloud that we we forget there's good stuff around. And uh, the easiest way to start that trend and activate positivity is to do uh, a morning search for gratitude from the day before. Uh, Because even if you're not out and about, some good things may have happened that you'll miss or ignore if you're in this this state where you're, you're shut down either totally or partially. Hope is never further away than you thought. Hello, my friends. My name is Nishant and welcome to another episode of the Nishangar Show. This is a podcast about helping you live a fulfilled life and my job on this show is to invite the world-class experts to extract the practices, routines and habits to help you live a fulfilled and abundant life. Every Friday, I share a newsletter which mentions what I am learning new, recent podcast updates, things I am experimenting with, books I am reading or just anything. You can find the newsletter link at https colon slash slash nishangarg.me n-i-s-h-a-n-t-g-a-r-g dot me. Recently, I have been asked many times how to start a podcast and how to understand the basic philosophy and the fundamentals of starting a podcast. If you would like to talk to me, I'm happy to help you out. Just go to my website and send me an email. Today's guest is Dr. Dan Thomasulo. Dan's passion is positive psychology. He is known as one of the top 10 online influencers on the issue of depression. He is the academic director of Columbia University's Spirituality Mind-Body Institute and an assistant instructor to the founder of positive psychology, Martin Seligman, at the University of Pennsylvania's Master's in Applied Positive Psychology program. A licensed counseling psychologist with over 25 years as an experienced clinician. He is the creator of interactive behavioral therapy, the most widely used form of group therapy for people with intellectual and psychiatric disabilities. His most recent book, Learned Hopefulness, The Power of Positivity to Overcome Depression, is hailed as the perfect recipe for fulfillment, joy, peace, and expansion of awareness by Deepak Chopra. Dan is also the author of several books, including American Snake Pit and Confessions of a Formal Child, a Therapist's Memoir. In this episode, Dan discusses in length about cultivating hope in the moments of despair, his own depression, 
cherishing relationships, mindfulness meditation, the art of storytelling writing, the story of a disabled man, Richie, and much, much more. Without further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Dr. Dan. Dr. Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really looking forward to tonight. First of all, before we get started, please receive my deep gratitude and honor. Thank you. And again, it's an honor to be invited and to be here and to chat. Thank you so much. And there are so many stories, so many great points in the realm of depression. Hopefulness, not hopelessness, hopefulness. Yes. <laughs> right, right. We would love to connect so many story points. So I thought if we could start with the story of a violinist and a homeless man in New York City. So could you talk to us about that story? Can you say a little bit more about that, about the homeless man? There's, there's several stories that, that I have in my mind. So was there a particular one? <laughs> Believe it or not, there's, there's several. Any story that comes to your mind? Well, I guess this would be a start that my own struggle with depression, with being kind of kicked out of the house I was in and rattling around uh, New York and not having an anchor, and yet at the same time being in a PhD program. That was, that was sort of like my orientation to a shattered assumption about life. You know, I had a particular path. I was going to be a teacher and a researcher and, and all like that. And, you know, things just didn't go well for me. And I started running out of money, running out of places to live. And at the same time, still trying to go to school. And that, that ended up putting me in a position where I had to get a place to live <laughs> and a job. And um, that landed me in a group home for people with intellectual and psychiatric disabilities as the manager. I, I took the job, kind of talked my way into the job and really didn't have a good enough background to get there. <laughs> but it offered room and uh, board, so I was able to get food and live there for a bit. And that was an awakening, because I started to work with people who were ferociously challenged in life, IQs below 70, psychiatric disabilities, and I had a really rough and tumble staff, too, because it was hard to find people. This is in 1979, I guess it is. And I really had to grow up pretty quickly. So that, that I think, was my introduction to positive psychology, but it was also my introduction to the psychology of evil. We were taking people out of Willowbrook. And Willowbrook, for people who may not know, was the school where they were warehousing people. So at one point, they had more than triple the number of folks that were supposed to be in there. And they weren't giving them food, weren't giving them clothing. And then they, there was suddenly a legal document called the Willowbrook Decree to get them out on the street and into the communities. And so it ended up being that this was the first experimental group home to see if they could take some of the more challenged people and put them into the community. So uh, that was kind of like my start with psychology, <laughs> trying to heal myself as well as those I was working with. Could you tell us any story about your memorable 
depressive moments or depression? Yeah, I, you know, I was married for about 25 years. And when the, the marriage went um, belly up, it capsized. I felt again very much adrift, and uh, but by this time I had already been an established psychologist, uh, you know, doing well. I had gotten that teaching job, doing research, you know, doing clinical work. But this this kind of caught me off guard, and the nature of my personality is to be happy, kind of joyous, you know, naturally. But this depression, uh, I could not shake. <laughs> There's nothing worse than a depressed psychologist. I could tell you that, you know, people would tell me what was bothering them. And I'd think to myself, huh, you think you got problems? <laughs> <laughs> I, did, I never said that out loud. But, you know, the feeling was if I'm going to stay in this field, I better find a way to challenge my own thinking and not be in this downward spiral that would seem to grip me. It's got a centripetal force to it. It kind of pulls you down. And uh, a friend of mine was becoming a uh, positive psychologist and said, let's go, let's go see Marty Seligman over at the University of Pennsylvania. And that was like, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be around 2,000 positive psychologists from around the world. Thank you very much. And uh, he didn't listen to me and just got us a ticket to the conference. And when I got there, it blew me away because even if a fraction of what the researchers were doing was true, psychology was really on the uh, uh, cusp of a new dawn. Uh, this is radically different than uh, traditional psychology because in traditional psychology, we're trying to alleviate suffering. And there's nothing wrong with that, but my goodness, not being depressed isn't the same as being happy. And I got exposed to tools that really fundamentally changed the way I was in the world. And that was great. What tools did you apply in your life when you were getting separated and divorced after 25 years of marriage? Well, you know, <laughs> mostly, mostly you lose your energy for doing anything. And that was probably, I'm a, I'm a fairly energetic person. But what I noticed was that my, my capacity for, you know, focusing, for enjoying things was really being drained. And I'm probably depressing everybody listening to this. <laughs> but, but what I noticed was that I didn't have that spark. You know, I didn't want to read books, look at TV, go to the movies, doing anything, because I, I really felt like the, the, my assumption about how to live life was really shattered. And I was also a trauma expert at that time, and it was, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm experiencing a, a traumatic reaction here, and yet with all the tools and everything, I, I couldn't pull, pull it out. So, you know, some of, the, some of the things I tried, of course, were traditional therapy. I tried some non-traditional therapies, you know, of, you know EMDR was uh, just coming on the scene at the time for, for trauma. That was, you know, everything was helpful somewhat. But nothing really did it. And uh, my, my concern was if I couldn't manage my own well-being, how in the world could I expect others to entrust their well-being with me? And so that, that started this investigation for, all right, well, how do, how do we do this? How do we get out of this tough spot? 
Dan, you mentioned about that your friend introduced you to positive psychology. What is that friend's name? It's Joel Morgowski. We've been best friends for 40 years. And so uh, we meet every week and we sit down and talk and solve most of the problems in the world in about three hours or so. We have lunch together, hang out together. And that's been a very deep and intense friendship that has spanned uh, decades and births and deaths and, you know, joys and sorrows and uh, really, truly a treasured relationship. And when he first got into positive psychology, it was like, geez, I guess I'm, I'm kind of losing him now, you know. And then when I was really in this bad way and he was there for me, he was like, listen, this science is pretty, <laughs> this is pretty, there's something going on here. And it was because of his insistence and influence that I went and studied with Marty Seligman. And then after I graduated the Master of Applied Positive Psychology program, I became his uh, assistant. And that's been about the last 10 years or so. I'm curious to ask you that, what lessons have you learned in your 40 years of friendship? Well, there's several things. One is such a different kind of love that you develop with long-term friends because the the number of shared experiences you know we were bicycle racers together so you know it wouldn't be uncommon for us to ride 150 200 miles a week at some point so you know we had that we we went to princeton together at, at different times for our, we were part of the fellowship over there. And we taught together at the same college for many, many years. So what, what starts to happen with a deep friendship is that you have so many points of reference that it, it's, it's the being together. You know, there's a, there's a term when they discuss flow called autotelic. And the term means that in the, in the activity itself is the joy, the the value, and it's the the value of the friendship is in the being together. It doesn't really matter what we're doing; it's the quality of friendship that prevails. And so, again, we well we we just did it. We sat on my my dock for three hours the other day and did not. <laughs> do a darn thing. I think we had half a bowl of peanuts and just chatted about everything under the sun. And then you realize it's the relationship. And and to tie that back in, if I can, you know, one, of the th one of the things, of course, uh, George Valiant was able to run the Harvard study for 30 some odd years, where we had a longitudinal look at really truly what it means to be happy and at the end of the day you know george said it's it's love you know full stop the love is what determines how well we'll live and how long we'll live and that has to do with family friendships and you know so joel joel is a very treasured person because we're counting on each other to help us live a very long life together. <laughs> <laughs> what advice would you give to somebody who doesn't have that kind of long-term friendship? Well, I think if you look at loneliness just as a epidemic now, you know, there's I think there's two ways to really start remedying it. The the first 
way is, is to recognize that your own thoughts are likely to be your greatest obstacles. That the, the, the initial work is within. The first revolution has to be within. And that has to start with just challenging your thinking. You know, if you're, if you're thinking repetitive thoughts of why bother, they have to be challenged. Because the why bother will zap your energy. It'll keep you stuck. It'll create a self-fulfilling prophecy. You, you, you'll, you'll stay isolated under the umbrella term that it's somehow protecting you. When the truth is, it's actually draining you. And on that end, I would really encourage people uh, to develop spiritual habits if you're alone to begin with. Meditation, prayer, the, the efficacy of, of prayer and medica- meditation is very well known. And, uh, you know, the research from Lisa Miller at uh, Columbia shows very clearly that a transcendent spiritual drive is inherent in being human. And I think what happens when we're isolated and, and don't have access or feel we don't have access to others, we'll forget that, that we have this transcendent quality inherent in our own being. So prayer and meditation are really direct ways to access that. Then the second way, of course, is get off your butt. You know, get out, take a walk around the block, and do something we call hunt the good. There's a lot of good stuff out there, but when you're in a depression, it's like looking through life uh, with a dark screen or veil in front of you. Life is there, it's on the other side. It's like the sun being hidden by the cloud. Nobody would suggest that the sun has gone away, but we get so focused on the cloud that we we forget there's good stuff around. And the easiest way to start that trend and activate positivity is to do a, a morning search for gratitude from the day before. Uh, because even if you're not out and about, some good things may have happened that you'll miss or ignore if you're in this this state where you're you're shut down either totally or partially. Dan, what kind of meditation do you practice? <laughs> We're going to be here a long time. <laughs> uh, I, I've been meditating for, uh, I, I probably meditated for 20 years before I found one I liked. I'll be very honest about that. They all, you know, now there's so many apps for meditation, you know, but I, 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 I started back in the 60s, actually. And, I, you know, the truth is there's a saying in meditation, there's no such thing as a bad meditation. And, you know, I try one for a while, try different kinds. Then they, you know, tried the TM in the beginning, Transcendental Meditation, because it was big with the Beatles and the Maharishi and all like that. But it never really captured me, this single point of focus and repetitive sound. That, 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 it, it worked to some degree, but it was just not, not something that I could continue with. And I have dear friends who have been doing it for 50 years, and they love it. So it's not... It's just I think each person has to find their own rhythm. But a, a couple of different things ha- happened. Started doing mindfulness meditation, but I, I really didn't get it <laughs> in the beginning. You know, <laughs> mindfulness meditation, you sit 
and you're supposed to observe your thoughts. And then I go, okay, I'm, I'm getting it. I'm, I'm going to get it. No, wait a minute. If I'm thinking I'm getting it, I can't be getting it. Uh, there's something wrong. Oh, no, there's nothing wrong. No, I'm just observing these thoughts. Okay, I, now I got to be more. Mild. And that's the kind I do an hour of that. And that would, <laughs> that would screw me up more than anything else. So, But then I found the true nature of mindfulness, which was Thich Nhat Hanh's seminal work on the miracle of mindfulness. And that, that really captured me because he said that, you know, what the West had done and, you know, like John Kabat-Zinn and, the, you know, all the, all the work there, which has been terrific, but it was really a means to an end, the way the Westerners were looking at it. You know, you meditate so that you, 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 there's a payoff for it. But in Thich Nhat Hanh's work, he really illuminated the, the point that mindfulness is the goal of life. And I was like, whoa, that's, that's, that's a challenge. How, how do you become mindful? So actually, m- most recently, the last 10 years, I've been fascinated with dispositional mindfulness about what's my disposition in this moment? How can I be self-aware at the same time that I'm observing myself. So you you kind of get a little separation, a little split of the self. There's you observing you. And that becomes quite illuminating because it raises your senses, your sensitivity, your consciousness. So dispositional mindfulness is, is definitely one of my favorites. I'm actually doing a piece of research on now on a derivative of Tonglen meditation, because I found Tonglen, for me personally, to be very powerful. And Tonglen is a cousin to loving-kindness meditation. Mm -hmm. So in loving-kindness, you know, you kind of start with the positive connections you have to other people, and then (laughs) work your way down to the people you wish would develop all kinds of bad things <laughs> and try to hold on to the positivity. But in Tonglen, you're actually using a transformational mindset where you're moving towards something uncomfortable and negative. And the, the more traditional methods of Tonglen, I didn't find very useful in my own circumstance because you have to sort of breathe in the pain of the world. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, we're from New Jersey. We got enough pain right here in New Jersey. We, we're not going to take in the pain of the world. So I needed something a little more local. And then I realized there wasn't a lot of research on that. So we're uh, researching that now where people can use the same breathing techniques and methods that are identified in Tonglen but to transform personal anxieties and disappointments into something a little more acceptable. So I'd say right now, dispositional mindfulness and Tonglen are my go-tos. Is there any correlation between mindfulness meditation and positive psychology, according to you? Oh, absolutely. I'll stop short of saying that mindfulness meditation is a portal into positive psychology. But I will say this, anything, anything, anything that gives us pause for thought is an immediate activation of a core strength, core characteristic of self-regulation. 
right? So anything that gives us pause for thought and we stop and take note of what we're doing, how we're doing it, what's in our surrounding, any reflection at that level is activating the character strength of self-regulation. And there's uh, some really interesting research that I, I believe very strongly in that when you're engaged in dispositional mindfulness, which is taking stock of what's happening to you in this moment, two of the top character strengths that lead to success are activated hope and grit. So that's pretty powerful. Why would those two happen? Well, it's because the pause for thought is giving us the capacity to self-regulate. Just before you even start meditating, the, the intention to do that is already putting you down the right path. So for, for me, it's not mindfulness meditation alone that has such a tremendous impact on positive psychology, but it's our capacity for having a pause for thought at any level that gives us that kind of self-regulation needed for growth. Yes, and Dan, I would love to ask you about hopefulness, that in a way, how have you learned to be hopeful about things when life is not easy, when there are challenging moments? And I'm sure you have had many challenging moments in your life. Yeah. Let me... Let me do this. Let me answer that in two ways if I can. The first Please. way, the first way is sort of a academic or scientific awakening. I was invited to a lecture, it was about 40 people in this lecture given by Marty Seligman and Steve Mayer back around I think it was 2016, 2015, maybe something like that. Probably 2016. And this lecture was about the original research on learned hopelessness. And Marty was working with Steve. They were graduate students back at UPenn. And they, they kind of came up with this idea about what happens if you make animals helpless and then put them in another environment where they could easily control the environment, but they acted helpless then in that environment. And they, they were able to show in a wide variety of circumstances as an example, if you were to shock dogs, uh, and no matter what they did, they received the shock. And by the way, Marty says this was just in vogue at the time. He's a dog lover. They would never do anything like this uh, now. But you know what they learned is that if an animal was in a circumstance where they had no control, and then they were given control later on, like they, they're put in a, a shuttle box where part of the floor would be electrified and they should be able to jump over a partition. The dogs that couldn't get away from the shock in the other circumstance did nothing to try and get away. They learned helplessness. It was like a powerful paradigm because the behaviorists couldn't explain it. Nobody could explain it. The only reasonable explanation was if you were made to feel helpless in one circumstance, you learned to be helpless in the next. But a 50-year follow-up of their original research showed that they were completely wrong. <laughs> and this lecture was about how wrong they were. They, they were as wrong as wrong could be. And this is what made me admire you know, Marty's work and Steve's work so much because they fell on their own sword. 
they, they were able to say that now with the use of fMRIs and understanding brain structure differently, what they realized was happening is that if, if an animal were exposed to chronic aversive stimuli, that the brain would throw a switch and shut them down. It's an evolutionary response. Don't waste your energy if there's no way you can get out of this thing. You would get shut down. But they found in the original experiments, about a third of the dogs who had been helpless were still jumping over that partition. So it means it wasn't working with all the dogs all the times, and that became fascinating to them. And in this circumstance, they found out the reason why dogs put in that new situation could jump over that partition is because of the future. They had a risk assessment of the future. Can I control my future? It was nothing about what they learned in the past. It was what they learned in about controlling the future. So the name of the brain circuit that they identified, they called the hope circuit, because it's about your expectation of controlling the future that defines how much hope they have and their, their motivation. Well, I remember being in that lecture and just wanting to run out and write this book because <laughs> <laughs> it was like, that's the answer. Which book? It, it, yeah, Learned Hopefulness. It's a book that came out in June 2020. I actually asked you because you have so many books. <laughs> yes, yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's the most recent one. And I was surprised because uh, it came out, was the number one new release on Amazon when it came out, because I think the world is ready for the science of hope. And But it was that lecture that kind of sparked my interest because instead of trying to figure out what we did wrong in the past or what held us back or what we learned that's holding us back, it's much more about how we assess our belief system about the future. And that was very, very, very exciting. So the first part of my answer <laughs> is, is that there was an academic sort of revelation that was uh, just so exciting to be part of. And then the other thing was, part and parcel of that, was recognizing that all of my work, back with Willowbrook, back in my own life, all everything, somehow, as a writer, as a therapist, as a, all of these things centered around hope. My job was to give hope to other people, inspire others, inspire myself finding the light in the darkness and i never saw it as a like a galvanizing theme until i real started to really look back at everything that i've written all the books all the work i've done it's like oh my goodness i enter into these relationships or these projects with tremendous hope and now i want to go figure out the science behind it and uh, that's what learned hopefulness uh, was about along with the situation with your wife and the separation with your wife do you remember any other instance when you felt helpless i i think that there are lots of different inflection points 
I, I, I can tell you what, because it, it still kind of stuns, stuns me. I was with the university. I was doing extremely well at this university and had all the recommendations, recommendation for promotion, you know, professor, tenure, the, the whole thing. And it got blocked. And to this day, I have no idea what happened. But it just got blocked, and I was like, "Oh my goodness, well, I couldn't imagine." There, there was every single thing I had done was right, and every I met with every committee and, and, and every person, and only to come to find out that it had gotten blocked for political reasons that I was not even involved with. And but it was devastating because I had worked about as hard as I thought anybody could work for something, and then it was like, huh. And so I decided not to stay. I made a choice, a very conscious, deliberate choice to leave. But boy, when when I closed that door, it was like, wow. I guess that's the end of my academic whatever. Because if I worked this hard and it didn't pay off, you know what else? What else could I, you know, I, I just can't work that hard. I'll, I'll do private practice or consulting or something like that. And then it was about six months later, I got offered a position at uh, Columbia a University. And then about six years later, they invited me to become the head of the department, the academic director. And if you had asked me if that kind of transition were possible, <laughs> I would have said no. <laughs> but I've learned that the despair that happens to us, often on a fairly regular basis, it shouldn't be measured in the moment of despair. Because if that original door hadn't closed, the other door wouldn't have opened because I wouldn't have been available or thinking about it or look so so sometimes the door has to close to nudge us over to the door that's going to open and be our calling and this is our ego which is trying to focus on things what we don't have and i you can correct me if i'm wrong dan and positive psychology comes into play and and ask us to focus on things that we already have and focusing on our strengths very, very true. I, I think that's the biggest shift is to recognize that there are blessings all around us. And there is just the, the very fact that we're conscious and that we're aware of being aware is, is such a strong indication that something much greater than us is out there in the universe. And our job is to try and figure out what, what is our role here? How can we best help? If, if you're only thinking about what you can get for yourself, that'll be rather short-lived. But if you think about the wonderment and the, the pure mystery, you know, the mystic virtue, it's like, oh, there is so much we don't know. And if you recognize that we're part of a much larger system, no matter how you think of it, part of nature, part of the earth, part of the universe, you start to 
develop this sense that, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, my little ego has <laughs> not too much to do. I remember reading uh, I Am That, a spiritual classic, and it's a great, uh, great book because you, you, you start to read this and it's a question and answer format. And somewhere along the line, somebody says, you know, how do you know if something is good or bad or right or wrong or if you're doing the right thing, if you're doing the wrong thing? And, you know, this fully realized individual says in so many words, you just don't get it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The whole universe had a form. The earth had a form. You had to be born. The people around you had to be born. The circumstances had to be just right for us to stay alive. And 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 all of these things had to be in place before y- you started to think about right and wrong. <laughs> and that and, is where our hopefulness comes into play. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So so what do you think? You know, you're going to do the, the, the most you, you could possibly do in this situation that, that brings your ego into it is screw it up. And, and the best you can do is start looking for all the good things that are around you in that moment. Not what's wrong with it, but what's right with it. In your book, Learned Hopefulness, The Power of Positivity to Overcome Depression, There are nine avenues, and I will state those points and avenues, and I will let you pick one or two of your favorite to describe that. So one is seeing possibilities. Second is noticing beauty, benefits, and blessings. Third is cultivating positive feelings. Fourth, focusing on strengths. Number five, creating challenging goals. Number six, finding purpose. Number seven, cherishing relationships. Number eight, living the life you imagine. So Dan, can you pick one or two and describe to us? Well, I, I think, you know, we've been talking about all of these in different ways. So <laughs> I'm, so glad, I'm so glad that you've uh, reiterated it in, in this way. But the, the one that I'd, I'd want to come back to, because it's the one that comes up no matter who does the research, and that's cherishing, cherishing our relationships. You know, when I was talking earlier about my friend Joel, we make time for each other. And again, it it's just the joy of being together. When I'm, you know, and by the way, I'll, I'll just mention my daughter. A- after five years of me, <laughs> of me talking about how great the MAP program is at UPenn, and she had a, a doctorate in, in literature, poetry, and a D-Lit. And she had just finished that up. I said, great, now you can go back to school for this degree in positive psychology. <laughs> and she was like that. Um, literally, she was, I think, walking walking to get the degree. And I was bugging her about this. Well, she waited a couple of years, but she actually went back. As I told her, I said, these are... These are our people. These are all the positive folks. Well, she went back. She got the degree, and now we're we serve as Marty Seligman's assistant together. So I I work with my daughter, and coming all the way back around to cherishing relationships. You know the the quality of our time together is so tremendous because she's a poet. So I'll say, I'm trying to explain this. <laughs> you know, some some poet that's already done that. And she slips me the poetry and, you know, so 
family, friends, uh, relationships, love. It, you know, this, this idea of cherishing our relationships becomes central to our, our well-being. And the more that we can cultivate and um, extend and enhance them, the, the more we will have benefit. How's your relationship with your daughter? <laughs> it, is, it is spectacular. The, for a brief period of time, she, she lived with me a few years ago. She needed to stay with me for about six months. And we're very easy together. It's just a super easy thing. And one night I came home and started doing my work and, you know, my reading and stuff like that. And I was at the kitchen table and she was at the living room table. And I glanced up and I saw the scatter of books on her table was perfect mirror image of the scatter of books on my table. And we both had our chairs in exactly the same position, in exactly the same way. And I, I said, you know, honey, I think, I think we, there's something genetic going on here. <laughs> <laughs> that that we've, got, we've got a genetic footprint. And just so lovely because, you know, I, I'm watching her move into the world. She has a, a terrific job that she loves. She just given birth to a uh, first grandson. And I actually dedicated the book, Learned Hopefulness, to him because, you know, that's where the future is. And so her and her husband are just, you know, very mindful and thoughtful about living life. And I, I just love being, being part of it in any way that I can and sharing ideas and, and fun together. And I would love to connect this relationship part with child development. A lot of your work has been involved in intellectual disabilities and child development as well. So what can we do during child development phase to cultivate hopefulness, mindfulness, and positivity? What a great question. You know, my original PhD was in developmental psychology, and I have an additional master's in, in child development because I really thought I was going to be a child therapist. And although I was for a little while, I, I realized that it wasn't so much the children that needed the help, but it was their parents who were creating toxic or difficult environments. And so the, the very first thing I would say is to learn about the natural gifts your child has. You know, too often parents are trying to impose a way of thinking or a way of being. Uh, they're trying to impose success. And not that success is, is uh, a bad thing, but if it's the only thing, we kind of lose sight of the, the process of, of becoming, which is... It, you know, more important than the outcome. So to get parents to recognize that there are character strengths that the child has, the BIACharacter.org organization is, at this point, I think they have 11 million people in the database. They are doing uh, this work of identifying the 24 character strengths that are central to every known human culture. So it means that the moment a child is born, they come with an incredible package of gifts. They also have a transcendent desire. In other words, they are in the world trying to make meaning, 
and have purpose and transcendence as a central part of being human. And I think what ha often happens with parents is that they forget to honor what the child brings and try to impose a value system or a series of goals that they think is good when we should flip that around and try to figure out what the child has and nurture that. Dan, what for your strengths as a child? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that they've changed a, a heck of a lot. Creativity, humor, and perspective have always been on top. I was you know, I was a class clown, but I was also, uh, you know, the student council president because I, I had a perspective, you know, so I could, I could really appreciate the funny stuff. And I always enjoyed creative. I remember, I, I think I was five years old. I started a, uh, a newspaper in my neighborhood. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and, uh, I went around, I sold it for a nickel and uh, it was one page. I think I, 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 that's probably my highest paying writing to date. But I, you know, I drew cartoons. I was, you know, I, I really just love ha having a creative spirit. And so. Your you theater know, experience. <laughs> yeah. Yes. 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 Yeah. I haven't, I haven't talked too much about that. Let's I, talk about it, please. Yeah. <laughs> your playwriting, your screenplay, you have gotten international awards. Yes. 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 So I, I did. I, I well, I'll, 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 I'll just say, so back in the day, I was a, a stand-up comic at the Improv in New York City in Hell's Kitchen. And so somewhere along the line, I was uh, picked as, you know, one of the four up and coming. And so we were on all these anniversary shows and stuff. But I mean, Andy Kaufman, Robin Williams, Eddie Murphy, Joe Piscopo. I mean, this it, it was back in that day, you know, that kind of thing. So I really always enjoyed humor, comedy, creativity. And then I really, really thought I wanted to be a comedy writer. And I had a lovely, 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 lovely fellowship at Princeton, where I got to study with Christopher Durang, the playwright. And Christopher was just extraordinary. <laughs> and, and so I said, oh, Christopher, I, I, I want to write funny stuff and I want to go back to school. And he says, well, write funny stuff, but don't go back to school. That'll, that'll ruin your brain, you know. <laughs> but I, I didn't pay any attention. And I, I did. So I ended up getting a Master of Fine Arts in writing. And what I learned there was just so wonderful. You know, the craft of storytelling, it's one thing to tell a story orally, but to write it down and to have that capacity to narrate a story, that, that, that really took some, some learning. You know, I really had to learn that. And then after, after I did that, I, I really wanted to learn screenwriting. So for the book American Snake Pit now, I, I've done the screenplay. And I, I think to date it's won like maybe 35 or so awards. So I know, I know that I've learned something about the, the craft of storytelling, something that'll have a visual impact. See, in screenwriting, you, there's no wasted words, you know, and so in a narrative, if you're writing a, a paragraph to describe how somebody walks into a room, 
you can use 200, 250 words to say, you know, he stepped softly as he opened the turn, the door, blah, 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 blah. In screenwriting, you say, enters room. <laughs> <laughs> and so I kind of like that. It was like, that kind of shortens it. But then you have to craft your story differently because every word, every scene has got to have an impact. And as a listener to this podcast, I'm thinking, I want to learn this craft of a story writing and this creative writing. So where can I go? What can I do from here? Uh, there's so many great things. Uh, Robert McGee's got what I think is the best course on screenwriting. It's a three-day course, and I think he's one of the best teachers in any domain. And he's got a book called Story that is extraordinary. So I would highly recommend if you're looking to do that kind of screenwriting. Robert Peggy. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, if you're, it, it also depends on the kind. I'm more interested in nonfiction. So when I try to tell a story, I try to extract the the essence of the true story, but I'll use fictional elements to move the story along. So that's called creative nonfiction. And there's great courses. University of Iowa is a great, great school for that, an MFA in nonfiction writing. I went to the new school in New York City, just an extraordinary experience. I, I mean, I had Lucy Greeley and Danny Shapiro as as my mentors in that program so they they have a great reputation for hooking up newbies with established writers of course columbia's got a terrific writing program but i, I think if you're interested in storytelling any of the local local schools online are great because they 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 set deadlines for you <laughs> you know and and once you have a deadline you you got to produce something they also teach you how to critique it you don't want to say oh geez that was good you know when somebody writes something you want to know why it was good and be able to articulate that because in being able to critique others you're able to generate better writing for yourself in the preparation of this conversation i got to know about one story which is your emotional reaction to disabled persons, and you have talked about the story of a man, Richie, in your memoir, American uh, Snake Pit. Yes, yes, Richie. Could you talk to us about that for the next two minutes? <laughs> I sure can. You know, I, I growing up uh, in northern uh, New Jersey, in the town I grew up in, there was this uh, fellow who was clearly disabled intellectually, and but he never had a mean uh, bone in his body. And he looked a little funny and walked a little funny. And, you know, this is back in the 60s. And, and so there really wasn't much compassion. And so he would go to the football games and basketball games and the wrestling matches. And he'd always root for the home team. And he'd, he'd, he'd yell a little too loud or stand up when he shouldn't have or you know, like he, he was just a little bit off and uh, boy, oh boy, people were, were rude and mean. And he never, ever, ever, ever lost his cool. And I remember thinking, oh my goodness, what, don't, don't cheer so loud. You know, don't, don't stand up in the stands. Don't do this. In other words, why don't you make my life easier by not being you? And I, 
I was embarrassed by having those thoughts, but it didn't really hit me until I started working with people with disabilities that, you know, my compassion and tolerance were going to go a much longer way in, in promoting the well-being in their life and in my own well-being. And so I, I think that early experience with Richie was really something that helped me recognize my own reaction and being kind of, I, I guess, ashamed, really, of seeing that, that I, didn't, I didn't want something good for this person. I just wanted them to not make waves. And I think that that was, that was a powerful way of understanding what needed to change in my psyche. Dan, I have thoroughly loved this conversation. So I would love to ask you that. What is the legacy you want to leave in this world? What a great question. I think I'll, I'll say that having the time with my daughter and seeing her grab on so fiercely to positive psychology and seeing her bring that into her personal life and her work life really gives me pure hope. And my, I, I feel like the luckiest person in the world to be teaching at the Spirituality Mind-Body Institute at Columbia and seeing students get inspired by this and wanting to go out into the world and you know, just make it a better place to, to bring their unique gifts out there. So at a, at a personal level, the, the legacy would be to see my, my family evolve through my daughter, my grandson, and now my granddaughter. I know that my uh, daughter is planning on a granddaughter soon. And then my students to see them be ignited by this and carry the work on. Love this. And where can our listeners find you? Anything that you want to share, it's an open floor again for you, sir. Well, thanks so much. Probably the easiest thing is the the website. It's just my name, Dan Tomasulo, D-A-N-T-O-M-A-S-U-L-O dot com. And if you if you go there, you sign up, you can get the uh, first couple of chapters of Learned Hopefulness. And then any of the new research or information that's coming out, you'd be on a mailing list. So that's probably the easiest way. And there's a direct way to get in touch with me there, too, if you're, if you're interested in that. And, you know, I think that would, that would probably be the most direct thing. Yes. Last but not the least, is there anything, Dan, that I should have asked you and I didn't ask you? <laughs> You know, it's been such a lovely time chatting with you. It feels like the time has just evaporated. And I don't feel like there's anything left on the table. I don't think like, oh, geez, I wish he asked about this. <laughs> I, I don't feel that. I feel, you, you know, we, we had a very organic and natural discussion. And it seems like, you know, this is a good place to close it. Thank you so much. It was my complete honor. Well, thank you for inviting me, and I love what you're doing here with this this very, very inspiring format you have. Thank you again. 
thank you for listening to this podcast episode today if you did enjoy this please subscribe to this podcast on apple podcast or you can visit https colon slash slash nishangarg.me n-i-s-h-a-n-t-g-a-r-g dot me you can also share this episode with your loved ones to help them live a fulfilled life you are not alone in this journey we all struggle in life there is no shame in talking about it i go through my highs and lows i get depressed and these practices help me in living a resilient life you can also do this you got this don't judge yourself you are doing the best you can and thank you so much again thank you